Hey, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 if you have your Bibles today. If not, we'll have some ushers go down the aisles. If you want a Bible, they'll have one that you can use today. And we find ourselves in the second week of a series that if you look at the front of your bulletin, we're calling The Veil. And what we're trying to do as we push towards Easter, that's now four Sundays from today, is we're trying to learn how to grasp the spiritual significance of Easter and what happened not to, not to allow us to have an Easter egg hunt, not to allow us to dress up nice and come to church one Sunday a year, but we're trying to figure out the spiritual significance of what happened on the cross and on Easter Sunday so that by understanding it, it may change our lives forever. And we're centered in a text the next five weeks that's actually the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. So if you're in Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start at verse 33. We'll go through verse 54. We were here last week. We'll be here next week. And we're trying to understand, as God wants us to, the spiritual significance of the veil being torn in Scripture and how that has the ability, if we choose, to end our separation from God. And here's where Matthew 27, 33 starts off. It says, They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. That was kind of a painkiller. So that was a medicinal thing for him. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who, were, who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now we are focused specifically on verses 50 and 51, starting last week and going through Easter Sunday. And if I was giving a pop quiz today, the question would be this, what is the very first thing that happened on planet earth when Jesus died? Because Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 50, he says, Jesus cried and then he gave up his spirit. At the exact same moment that he died, Matthew told us that something happened, and I believe that something that happened is one of the, one of the biggest, if not the greatest, spiritual moment in the history of the world. According to Matthew 27, 51, it says, at the moment that Jesus died, something happened. 
The very first thing that happened when Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in the New King James Version, which you have written on your sermon notes, it says, behold, the veil of the temple, a little more traditional language, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And here's why I say I believe this is one of the most significant events in the history of planet Earth. Easter Sunday in the empty tomb have to be, I mean, as close to the very top as they can be. But many people had raised from the dead. Jesus had raised several from the dead during his ministry. But Jesus is the only person who died whose death ended the separation that God had placed between he and humanity more than 2,000 years earlier. So Jesus' death signifies for us the ability to have access to God if we want it. Now, last week we went over this in detail. If you weren't here last week, if you were still on spring break, I encourage you to get online and download that message so that you can catch up with us. But the highlights of last week will lead us into today. We said last week that God created a world that had no, no relational separation between himself and humanity. When Jesus died, there was a wall between the presence of God in the presence of people, but it wasn't always that way. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see a world created where God had physical contact with humanity. We see that Adam, when God breathed the breath of life into him, literally God's lips were on Adam's face. They were face to face. They hung out together each evening. We pictured it, you know, said they took walks in the cool of the day. It would be like having a barbecue on a nice spring day and hanging out outside. God and humanity hung out in the evenings together. Unfortunately, we learned last week that humanity made a choice and they chose separation from God in order that they might have total control of self. And that led to a division between humanity and God. God said, you can have all of me if you do it my way. And humanity said, you know, we'd like to do it our way and then maybe have as much of you as is left. And that built a barrier between God and humanity. God first kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And then he set an angel in place so they couldn't ever go back into the Garden of Eden. And from Genesis 3.23 to Matthew 27.51 There was always a wall between man and God. Man could only get so close to God before there was a disconnect spiritually and relationally. But what God allowed in his goodness, number three, we said last week, that God responded to humanity's total rejection of of him by granting temporary relational access to himself, but only those who desired it. So because God's a gentleman, he didn't force himself on the world. God said, listen, if you want to get to me, here's how it's going to happen but the way I teach you to approach me is going to, teach, is going to teach you something about me and it's going to teach you something about yourself. And we realize that Jesus, number four, restored the ability for humanity to live without God um, when he died on the cross. But for 1,500 years before Jesus died, God said, if you're going to approach me and if you want to be close to me, there's a way that I want you to do it. And the way that I prescribe for you and I having a relationship with each other, going to teach you a lot about me, going to teach you a lot about you. And when you understand those dynamics, your life will be forever different. Now, to understand those dynamics, we are studying, and I handed this out last week for those of you who brought it back with you, we're studying the Old Testament tabernacle, and we're studying the Old Testament temple, because these are the prescriptions for how God told people to approach him. Now, I've I've had our ushers get some of these. If you did not bring this back or you do not have this today, just raise your hand and our ushers are going to give it to you. They're going to kind of be scattered everywhere. I want you to have this and I want you to put it in your Bible and bring it back with you next week. But if you do not have one of these, just make eye contact, give them a wave and they'll put it in your hands because 
our study the next five weeks is going to be about the temple and the tabernacle and how by learning to approach God the way God says, approach me, we're going to have tremendous spiritual access to God. A few weeks ago, Danielle and I left and we went on spring break and we left something in our house that somebody had to get. So we called up someone and we said, listen, there's something in our house that we need you to get, but we're in Phoenix and you're in Kansas City. So we gave them very specific instructions. We told them what our garage code was. We told them what our alarm code was. We told them once they got in the house, which set of steps to take. We told them which bedroom to go into. We told them which desk the thing they needed to get into was. And we told them which drawer in the desk that thing was and where in that drawer it was. We told them very specifically how to get someplace to accomplish something. God has done the exact same thing for us in the tabernacle and the temple. God says, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you, want to ha- if you want to be close to me, if you want to unlock the secrets of intimacy with the God of the universe, then I need you to, to go to this place and to go to this place and do this, and I need you to walk down this hallway, and I need you to go through this doorway, and I need you to find this desk, and inside this formula, you're going to find the ability to have great intimacy with me. He drew that up in what we call the tabernacle and the temple, and there are five key areas of spiritual significance and understanding that are in the tabernacle and the temple that we're going to share the next five weeks. They're the basins, which you can see in the temple. We don't have an expanded enough view of the tabernacle, but these big water pots, the big one was actually large enough for the priest to bathe his entire body. It was kind of like a swimming pool. And then you see some smaller ones on the side that they were able to wash their hands with. The lampstand, which you can see inside the tabernacle in the temple. We call it a menorah in our English language. The table of showbread, which reminded the people that God would always provide for them. The altar of incense where the priests learned how to pray. And then the veil that was torn on Easter Sunday. So the next five weeks, we'll look at all those things. But today, we start with the basins. And our goal today, in understanding the pathway to God and the way that God has said, this is how I want you to approach me, the goal today is for us to realize our need for spiritual cleansing. The goal for you and I today is to realize our need for spiritual cleansing because God told the people of Israel, when you approach me, I want you to approach me this way. And one of those ways is by understanding the necessity of spiritual cleansing. So as you take your notes out of your bulletin and we begin to learn the spiritual lessons of the bronze basin, remember our goal is not just to pass an intellectual test at the end of this series so we can answer a question on what this is. Our goal is to end our separation from God or to remove any small separation in our life that's keeping us from being very close to God. That's our goal is to get closer to God. So my hope today is by studying the basin, we'll be able to do that because the basin teaches us a lot of things, but I've tried to boil it down into three lessons that I really believe God wants us to know. The first lesson when we think about spiritual cleansing and what God put in the tabernacle and the temple is that we know that God wants us to recognize the seriousness of sin. You and I need to understand that God wants us to understand the seriousness of sin. He wants us to understand that sin is a big deal to him. He wants us to understand that sin is a deal breaker to him. And God has never been shy about this fact. If you have your Bible, go back to Genesis chapter 2. Because God, when he introduced the way that he wanted to interact with humanity, he warned them that if you do this, it's sin, and sin is very serious, and it's going to jeopardize your relationship with me. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it 
and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. God said, you need to understand sin is serious. And when I lay down a rule and I lay down a consequence, either I keep that or I'm a God who changes my mind and we can't be having that. So God, from the very first time God told someone how he wanted them to live, he warned them that the consequences of not living that way would be very, very serious. And what's funny is Satan creeps into the picture in Genesis chapter 3, and Satan, the first thing he wants humanity to do is he wants them to put away the thought that sin is serious or that sin offends God or that sin is a big deal. Because God says in Genesis 2.17, if you sin, you're going to die. Look what Satan says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. You see, Satan wants us to believe that things that God says are serious are not serious at all. And God said sin is serious, and and when sin enters the equation, there's going to be death. And Satan said that's not true. So we go through marriage, and the Bible tells us how to be married well. And Scripture will tell us if you invite these things into your marriage, it could be the death of your marriage. And Satan said, no, it's not. And then your marriage dies. And, and you try to raise your kids, and Scripture says if you don't raise your kids according to understanding who God is, your kids may go away, and your kids may experience a real spiritual disconnect. And Satan says, no, they won't. And God says, listen, if you, if you want to have great integrity in your life and in your business and at your job, you need to act a certain way. It's very serious to do things the way I said it. And Satan says, no, it's not. And every time God says something is serious, I want you to live your life this way, Satan says, no, it's not. And the spiritual axiom we learned from Genesis chapter 3, a spiritual axiom is kind of like a proverb or a spiritual truth, is this, Satan lied and humanity died. Satan lied and humanity died. God said, sin is serious, don't do it or you die. And Satan said, no, you won't. And they did, and they did. They sinned, and then they died. And what Satan would like to tell you right now is that God's word is not true, that God's word is not important, that God's spirit is not leading you. And Satan would like to undo the work of God in your heart right now because he wants, he wants your hope and your future to be dead. And he wants your marriage to be dead. And he wants your relationship with your kids to be dead. And he wants all your, your self-confidence to be dead. And he wants all your enjoyment in life to be jet, dead. John 10.10 10 says, the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He just wants to take everything that's alive in your life and make it dead. So God says, do this and you'll live. And Satan says, you don't have to do that. You can live anyway. But the truth is, Satan lies and humanity dies. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul put it this way. The greatest theology teacher in the history of the world was the Apostle Paul. And in Romans chapter 5, when he needed to understand things about, when he needed to explain things about God to people, he said, let me take you back to the Garden of Eden. And he teaches the same story we're trying to teach here today. In Romans 5, he says, therefore, just as sin, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was ever given, but sin isn't charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who's a pattern of the one to come. Here's what the Apostle Paul was saying. Ever since Adam sinned, sin has been impacting people negatively. And then the Apostle Paul does what only a great theologian can do, and he said, now let me prove this to you. 
Because he said Moses didn't come to give the law until thousands of years later, which means this. How can you sin if there are no commandments? Good question. God didn't tell the people what was right and wrong until thousands of years later, except everyone still died. That proves that sin has impacted everyone in humanity because even if they don't know the rules and they don't sin intentionally, the fact that they die tells us sin is a cancer in the souls and the lives of people. And sin is serious. Whether or not people know, it is because the fact that people keep dying tells us that sin is still working in the world. And what's funny is Adam and Eve had only one rule to follow, and they broke it. Later in Exodus chapter 15, God would for the first time give another rule. The people of Israel, he'd rescued from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He had, he had put 10 plagues on the people of Egypt. He'd led them out through the Red Sea. He divided the Red Seas. He'd even fed them. He'd given them water in the desert. And then he said, listen, I've only got one rule. This was way before the Ten Commandments were. He got one rule. I'm going to give you a bunch of food and water. And for six days, you go get as much food and water as you want. But on the sixth day, get twice as much. Because on the seventh day, I need you to prove to me that you trust me. On the seventh day, don't go gather. And don't worry. It'll be there the next day. But on the seventh day, prove that you trust me. They had one rule, and they broke it. They all went out of their tents to gather. And God told Moses, how long until all these idiots get it right spiritually? Like, have I not proven myself to them yet? And it's interesting because if, if, if Adam and Eve had gotten it right, and their sons Cain and Abel and later Seth had gotten it right, and if they'd have gotten it right all the way, if everyone who had ever lived had gotten it right up to February 4th, 1978, when I was born, I would have been the one to break it. I promise you. If death wouldn't have entered the world until me, it would have entered the world through me. See, it's easy to look at Adam and say, well, that's not fair. Adam messed this up for all of us. No, if it wouldn't have been Adam, it would have been the next guy. Because we've got this spirit of rebellion that says, I want to be close to God, but I also would like to do things my own way. And God said, that doesn't, that doesn't work. And what's funny is Paul said, one guy messed this up. But James comes back later in James chapter 5, and he says, you know, one guy can actually fix this too. And he's not just talking about Jesus as Paul was theologically in Romans 5. In James 5, James says, remember this, those of you who think it's not fair that people are away from God, even though they don't know anything about it. James says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You see, what Adam messed up, you might have the ability to fix. And I, I asked you last week to start thinking about Easter Sunday. And specifically, who in your life do you know who's not deeply connected to God, who, who needs to be more connected to God that you can invite on Easter Sunday? Because on Easter Sunday, people who will say no to church 51 other weeks a year will come on Easter Sunday because kind of the whole world goes to church on Easter Sunday. And they even, I mean, it's on all the TV services. The Pope from the Vatican is doing church on Easter Sunday. It's kind of a thing people do. So I said, if we have people in our life who have been negatively impacted by Adam and they're away from God, it's not even their fault. We have to realize that and say, you know what? I can't change what Adam did, but I can change what, what I do. I can invite them to church. I can bring them to church. I can take them to lunch after church. For some of you, it's your sons and your daughters. For some of you, it's your moms and your dads. For some of you, it's your husbands and wives. You come often, but they don't. For some of you, it's your, your neighbor or your boss or your employees or your coworkers or a teammate or the parent of somebody who's on one of your teams. We have to all be thinking, because Adam messed everything up and sin is serious, 
I got to make sure I get people to God so they can understand how to fix their problem. Now, a lot of people hear James chapter 5, verse 20, and they get offended. As a matter of fact, the word sinner is offensive in the American culture today. And the word sin is something that we're not even, we're not even sure it's right to judge people based on their life. But the fact of sin, the word sin means missing the mark of God's standard. That's what it means. The word sin is actually a picture of somebody shooting an arrow at at a bullseye and they miss the bullseye. That's what sin is. Sin is saying, here's the target God has set and you missed. You say, well, what's the target that God has set? Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, there's God's standard. So sin is being less than perfect. When you hear it that way, you think, okay, I'm less than perfect, but I don't want to be called a sinner, and I don't want to be called wrong. And we live in this world where spiritually, when we're told we miss the mark, it's offensive to us because the devil's in our head saying, no, you didn't. You don't have to hit the mark. Why? You shouldn't have to hit the mark. That's not fair. Why would anyone hold you to a standard of perfection? And we get mad at God when in other areas we're okay with that. I don't know how many of you filled out an NCAA bracket, but you might know, even if you don't do that, that... Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men in the world, created a billion-dollar bracket challenge this year for people in America, which means this. Mr. Buffett was going to give a billion dollars to anyone who picked every game of the NCAA tournament correctly. A mathematician went through all the scenarios of games that could actually happen, and he said it's a 1 in 128 billion chance that somebody could be perfect in picking all the games, and lo and behold, more than 10 million people filled it out, and they didn't even make it through the first week of the tournament before everyone had failed. Now, we don't stand and say, he should give me a billion dollars anyway. I tried my best. How dare he say, I have to be perfect in order to win his billion dollars. He should give it to me. Yet we look at God and we say, we we hear God say, here's my standard for heaven. Here's my standard for eternity. Here's my standard for forgiveness. And we say, how dare God demand that I be perfect? Can I do things my own way and have it anyway? And, and, And we show more respect to billionaire Warren Buffett than we do to the God of the universe because we hear him say, and we even laugh, well, yep, my bracket's busted. Guess I'm, guess I'm imperfect. But we shake our fist at God and say, how dare you say I have to be perfect? But God says that's his standard because sin is serious. So we have to ask this question because this presents quite the spiritual dilemma, does it not? The question is this, how can anyone have a relationship with God if they have to be perfect? The little book that we give away in our bags to first-time guests says what happens when good is, good is not good enough. Since nobody's perfect, how good is good enough? Because I think all of us would admit that we're not perfect. We're just not sure if that's a fair standard for God to show to us because how could anyone have a relationship with God if they have to be perfect? The answer is twofold. The answer is God has to offer forgiveness for your imperfection, but he also has to keep his word about the seriousness of sin Or he becomes a flip-flopper. And we don't have to trust anything, he says. Because he told Adam and Eve that according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin is serious, and when sin happens, something has to die. So for God to let us sin and still live, either God has to change his mind, and sin no longer requires death, or God has to allow a substitute death to pay for our sin so that it's not held against us. 
And as we read through Scripture, we figure out that this is what God has decided to do, beginning with Adam and Eve. And what we're going to learn as we start with Adam and Eve and we go all the way to Matthew chapter 27, 50, is that God is going to say, I'm, I'm going to allow you, even though you're imperfect, I'm going to allow you to have a relationship with me. However, here's a lesson you need to learn. Never approach me again without sacrifice and cleansing. I'm going to allow you to have a relationship with me, but because sin requires death, you can't approach me anymore as somebody who's less than perfect, as someone who's a sinner, unless you offer a sacrifice and unless you... You're working on cleansing or covering up the results of your sin. Look at Genesis 3.21 because the first time this happens is right after Adam and Eve sin, but they desire to still be close to God in their sin. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve, and he clothed them. Now I read that, and one of two things had to happen. Either God went to an animal and he borrowed its skin while letting it live so that he could clothe Adam and Eve, or God killed, like he said, if if you sin, something's going to die, or God killed an animal, sacrificed an animal, so that Adam and Eve could be forgiven and covered. A few years ago, I took my kids to a, a Christian museum in northern Kentucky called the Creation Museum, and the whole museum teaches basically about the, the first six chapters of Genesis and about the world through the lens of creation. And there's an exhibit in this museum of the Garden of Eden, which is fascinating. It really, it starts with the day of creation and it goes from light, let there be light, to let there be air between the earth, to let there be water and birds, all the way up to the, the, the creation of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And you see the garden, it's beautiful. And then you see Adam in the garden with the animals. And then you see Adam and Eve in the garden. And then you walk through an exhibit part where you see every life in the garden going perfect, but you can see the serpent kind of creeping in. And then you go from the serpent creeping in to you see the serpent talking to Adam and Eve and they're holding fruit. And then in the next one, they're eating fruit. And then the exhibit, it looks like it ends. And it's like, that's weird because you can see them eating fruit and then it's like they're hiding from God. And I was with my two kids who were young at the time and we turned a corner to go to the next stage of the exhibit. And the next stage of the exhibit was these two very lifelike dead animals that had been slaughtered laying out there, and all their skin was gone. And I'll never forget my kids recoiling and saying, why, why did that happen? Why, did, why, why would they show that? Why did that have to happen? And then the next exhibit is Adam and Eve in tears, wearing the skin of these animals, but back with God again. And it gave me this unbelievable chance for my kids to explain to them how sin demands death and covering and cleansing. And God had to, it was, it was either the animals or Adam and Eve, and God chose to let a sacrifice stand in their place because he loved Adam and Eve so much. And this is what God is trying to point out to us in Genesis chapter 3. In in Hebrews 9, in summarizing the Old Testament and how you had a relationship with God when you were less than perfect, Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law, that's the Old Testament, requires that nearly everything has to be cleansed with blood. There has to be a sacrifice. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And what's so cool is when God in the book of Leviticus begins to talk to us about the offerings, we really see the grace of God in abundance in how he deals with our sin, how he deals with our lack of perfection. Because in Leviticus chapter 4, God says, even when your sin is unintentional, like even when you don't know what you're doing, even when you're not raised in church and you don't know what's right and wrong and you don't know the Ten Commandments, even, 
even when you're less than perfect, but you didn't mean to be, even when it's unintentional, I'll forgive that. There's a sacrifice for that. In Leviticus 4, 2, he says, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and they they do what is forbidden, like even when you don't mean to or when you don't know it's wrong, it's still wrong, but I'll forgive you of that. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul said, I did all these things wrong that I didn't even realize were wrong at the time, but thank God he forgave me. God said in Leviticus 5.1, he said, even when it's sins of omission, which means this, it's, it's something you know you should do for the good of others, but you don't do it. You're less than perfect. You say, I didn't do very many bad things growing up. Well, how many good things did you do? Did you do every good thing you were presented the opportunity to do? Have you given money to every poor and hurting person you've had opportunity to give money to? Have you had the correct answer every time somebody has needed help? Have you always been available? I mean, are are you a perfect individual? God says in Leviticus 5.1, if anyone sins because they don't speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they've seen or heard. God says, listen, even when somebody doesn't do something right that a perfect person would do, I'll forgive that if a sacrifice is offered. I don't expect them to be perfect. I just expect them to understand that there has to be a sacrifice. In Leviticus 6, 2, God sees even rebellious sin, which we would look at unintentional sin and sins of omission, and we would say rebellion is the worst. Rebellion is, I know it's wrong, and I do it anyway because I don't care. In Leviticus 6, 2, God says, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted them or left for them, if they cheat people, God says, I'll forgive that. Even when someone knows that God thinks this is wrong and it's wrong to do to another human being, even when they do that, I'll forgive that because I want to make sure that I can have a relationship with people. God goes as far in Leviticus 4 as talking about group sin. He's like, listen, even when you're just going along with the crowd and you didn't realize what was going on was wrong, even when when you're just part of a big group that should speak up and do things differently, I'll even forgive you for that. As long as a sacrifice is made. He said, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, like if the whole group just does something wrong and not even very many people understand it, God says, a perfect person would speak up and try to change it, but even a less than perfect group, I'll forgive. When you say, what what is group sin? What do you mean by that? I'm talking about Nazi Germany before World War II. When if you study the history of Nazi Germany, some of the first people that Hitler convinced to teach about the the damnation of the Jewish people were the clergymen in Germany and probably a lot of them just didn't totally understand what was going on and the church was a major supporter of Kristallnacht and the the night of rounding up the Jews even when that whole thing went wrong God says I can forgive the church even when the church went wrong if you talk about American slavery and you study carefully the history of American slavery there was a lot of big old denominations in the southern part of the United States who helped keep an elected government that kept slavery in place because it was what they've always known see the group as a whole was wrong God said even when the country together is just kind of going in the wrong direction I'll even forgive that as long as a sacrifice is made And the reality is that for 1,500 years, nobody approached God without a sacrifice first. But if a sacrifice was made, God says anyone can approach me, whether they meant to, whether they should have spoken up, whether they were just being rebellious, whether they were just part of the group. I don't expect perfection anymore, but I expect imperfect people, I expect sinful people to understand that they need a sacrifice 
first. But what's interesting is we look at how the people approach God, and if you look at the little handout that I gave you and you look specifically at the temple, the place where you offered sacrifices was the altar that was in the middle of the courtyard. And if you and I were going to go to church or go to worship God, the very first place we would go was to the altar of sacrifice. The first thing that would happen on your way to see God would, would be that you'd have to have a sacrifice that would pay for your sins. Now, we know that as Jesus, but they've been doing this type of thing since 2,000 years before Jesus was born. As a matter of fact, in the tabernacle, if you look at the picture of the tabernacle that they've, that they've got here, go to the next one, if you would, all the way, scroll through the very end one that shows the entire courtyard. If you see the entire courtyard, you see the, the entrance gate, so you would go into the temple, you would offer your sacrifice, and then you would have to pass something between your sacrifice and actually going in to meet with God. You would have to pass something, and you can see it there called the bronze laver. Why? Because after your sacrifice, you would be covered in what? You'd be covered in blood. If you've ever hunted, if you've ever cleaned a fish, if you've ever shot a bird out of a tree and plucked its feathers off, when an animal sacrifice or an animal is, is trimmed or, you know, you've, you've even from a large piece of meat made steaks or ground your own meat for hamburger, there's a lot of blood. And Jesus said a sacrifice demands blood to forgive you. But after the sacrifice that's offered for forgiveness, I'm going to offer you a bronze basin for cleansing. And if you really want to know the key point of realization in this series for Christians today around the world, for New Testament Christians that are, that are living with access to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we live in a world, unfortunately, where many Christians have asked for forgiveness, but they have no desire for cleansing. They go to the altar and they say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Because you died on the cross, I believe I can be forgiven of my sin. But on their way to develop a relationship with God, they don't desire for their life to be cleaned up on the inside or on the outside. And what God is showing us through the tabernacle and what God is showing us through the temple is God wants, you to, wants to forgive your sin. But then God wants to clean up your life and he wants you to actually get that stuff out of your life so after you've been forgiven, then you get stuff out of your life and it helps you be much more closely connected to God. Because God knows that if sin stays, that sin spreads, unfortunately. And, and Paul later in scripture says, don't even give the devil a foothold. Don't give him one little area in your life because if you'll hang on to a little bit of sin that you don't feel like needs to be cleansed out of your life, it'll, it'll pollute your entire life. Last summer, Danielle and I would, for about a week, would go in and out of our house. And every time we'd go in the garage or out of the garage, we noticed that our garage smelled worse and worse and worse. And finally, Danielle, we came home for some, from somewhere and got out of the car. And she said, there's, some, you, there's something dead in this garage. You have to clean it out. So we went kind of inch by inch searching, and we ended up finding we've got two trash cans with black lids, and the one we never use was in the back of the garage, and we opened the lid, and I mean, it was like, like a gag you, overwhelming, knock you to the floor smell, like something bad was in there. And I took it outside, and Daniel says, you got to clean that thing out. So I took it outside, and the only thing that was in that trash can, our kids, one of our kids had come home from Subway, and they had like a half-eaten ham sandwich, and they had thrown, without the wrapper, they just threw the sandwich in there, 
And as it started getting hotter in Kansas City, and 70 became 80, and 80 became 90, and 90 became 100, that ham had, had not only begun to rot, but it had begun to, like, duplicate itself. Like, it had begun to spread, like, all across. Like, one piece of ham had, like, now taken up the whole bottom of the trash can. It was creeping up the sides. And one day it must have got really cold because that ham started growing fur. Like, you know, like it had, it was, like, real, like, green, like green fur all over it. And I looked, and, like, this trash can was covered with, mold and garbage because of one little piece of ham that had been left alone. And I remember taking it out into the yard and trying not to puke and I'd scraped it off and then I sprayed it and then I bleached it and then I sprayed it again and then I bleached it and then I think I threw all my clothes away. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. But it was because one little piece of ham had duplicated itself and grown hair. I mean, it was like the worst thing ever that you could imagine. And that's how sin works. See, and the Lord knows If he forgives you for all of your past, but if you let some of it hang around in your life, your life is going to stink spiritually. And you may be forgiven. God bless you. But God can't walk with someone who stinks spiritually until they've had some cleansing. So God says, if you're going to approach me, understand it needs to begin with forgiveness. But then you've got to to get cleaned up in your life. It's why in Romans 13, 14, Paul, reflecting on Genesis chapter 3, says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop right there. Paul's thinking specifically here about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God, and God clothed them with the skin of a sacrifice. Paul says, instead of killing animals and wearing their clothes... Let's recognize the killing of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, and let's begin to get dressed with his life and his attributes and his character and his spiritual cleanness. And what's funny in life, spiritual cleansing eventually always moves from actions to attitudes. If, if I was speaking at a youth camp, I'd talk about actions that students were engaged in that they needed to be cleaned up from. But most adults who are still in and around church They've kind of mastered the actions, at least publicly, so no one will think they're a bad Christian. But the attitudes of their hearts still need to be cleaned out. There's still a lot of bitterness. There's still a lot of lack of forgiveness. There's still a lot of jealousy and conflict between people. There's still maybe a lot of uh, a radical attitude of skepticism. Or maybe there's a radical attitude of entitlement. You know, we we look at our hearts and we've got to find, if it's actions... You know, maybe you don't need to quit cussing. Maybe you don't need to quit smoking cigarettes. Maybe you, you don't need to quit fighting anymore like you used to. Maybe you, maybe you don't drink like you used to in college. There's, there's not a lot of actions that you need to clean up from, but you look at the attitudes of your heart, and Paul said you need to still be, be becoming more like Jesus. Maybe you're really judgmental. Or maybe because you feel like you've been judged, you're kind of giving the Christian world the, the middle finger, and you're not going to do anything spiritually because you don't have to. What's the attitude inside you that has to go if you're going to get closer to Jesus? This is what the tabernacle and the temple are trying to point out to us. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. Here's the same thought again, that the sacrifice should change us on the outside. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. You see, when we learn that sin is serious, and when we learn a sacrifice has to be made for our sin, and we realize cleansing is important to God, what we realize is that we have to lean, lesson number three, as Christians, we have to lean into confession. 
And we have to lean into cleansing with an understanding of why these things are possible. Instead of rejecting the idea that we're sinners, that we're less than perfect, instead of rejecting the idea that God wants to help us and that God can help us, we need to understand that, that confession and cleansing are very, very important. Because Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? According to the Bible, the fact is you are a sinner by the Bible's definition. And if that offends you, you probably also cannot get a perfect NCAA bracket. Like, I'm not above telling people, you're probably not perfect, but that's what God demands. Say, Christian, don't judge me. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. God's not even judging you. He's just evaluating you and telling you what your next steps are to get away from the wrath that's called sin. And it's interesting because God wanted the people of Israel to understand that they had fallen short, but that they'd been given another chance. And that the reality of, I understand this and I want to live this, is the cleansing. Because what's really interesting is that God had the Israelites make the bronze basins out of a really peculiar material. And he did this so they would understand that they needed spiritual cleansing. Say, Christian, what was that material? Exodus 38.8 says they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the, what's the word? You need to underline that or circle that on your notes. From the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Which means as I offer my sacrifice and I come to be cleaned of my sacrifice and I'm cleaning up, what am I looking at? Anybody? Looking at me. I'm looking at the blood on my hands. And I'm realizing that I need the sacrifice for Jesus. I'm not, I'm not over here living my approach to God, thinking about how sinful everyone else is. I'm not trying in my spiritual cleansing to go to God and ask Him to clean me up and thinking about where my wife needs to be spiritually or my kids need to be spiritually or, or where the... the U.S. government needs to be spiritually, or where the media is spiritually. You see, in my relationship with God, it becomes about the man in the mirror. It becomes about me and my need for cleansing. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the things in my life that have to go, the actions that I've got to get a handle on. And I begin to think about the the attitudes that I've got to get a, a handle on. And my Christian life becomes about, thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice. But as I look at myself spiritually, I realize... Man, my next steps are I got to quit doing that. Or I got to start doing that. Or I got to quit feeling that way. Or I've got to get past that attitude that my grandpa had and my dad had and now I have and my son is going to have. And we start seeing who we are spiritually and who we need to become spiritually. You see, when Jesus tore the veil, yes, he opened up the way for God, but God says the way to real intimacy with me is through understanding these types of things about sacrifice And about cleansing, God wants you to understand that you need forgiveness and you need cleansing. And the fact is this, God wants to forgive you and he wants to cleanse you of your sin. The Apostle John speaking to this fact in 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, altar of sacrifice, and purifies us, bronze basin, from all unrighteousness. Now, the word confess, the biblical word for confess means to say the same thing or to agree. 
So if we confess our sin, we basically, we agree with what God says about our sin. God says, I expect perfection because I'm perfect. And we say, we agree. And God says, you are less than perfect. And we say, we agree. God says, that creates a problem, doesn't it? And we say, yes, God, it does. And God says, you need a sacrifice in order to get close to me, don't you? Yes, God, we do. So I'm going to give Jesus as your sacrifice so by the blood of Jesus your sin can be forgiven. I agree with that, God. And then you're going to need to be cleansed spiritually from who you were to who I want you to become. Because your old life doesn't work in this new relationship with me. And that's where a lot of people say, well, I don't know, God. I I don't know that I agree with that. That's not confession. Confession is, God, I agree with you. What do I need? And in Revelation 21.3, John paints the picture of what the world looks like when Jesus comes back, when everything is made new. And it's funny how much Revelation 21 and 22 look like Genesis 1 and 2. It's the world together, God together, animals, plants, garden. It's beautiful. But John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he'll dwell with them. And they're going to be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. See, one day we're going to live with God, and our lives are going to be so radically changed that our attitudes and our actions are going to be perfect. But until that time, God says, as you approach me, let's, let's work on getting there. So here's my question for you. Give me your attention for two minutes. What action in your life, as you perceive Jesus, has to go? What have you been hanging on to that as you look in the mirror... God is saying, you you really can't do that. If you really want to go to the next step spiritually, you can't keep doing that. Or what attitude? What attitude is sitting deep inside you that's keeping you from being really close to God, that's keeping you from trusting God, that's keeping you from being obedient to God, that's keeping you from being faithful to God? You got to find the source of that attitude. You got to look yourself in the spiritual mirror and say, why am I the way that I am? Why do I rebel against authority? Why, why, you know, why do I feel bad in these situations? What are the bad experiences? What are the relationships that have caused this? And God, how do you work this attitude out of me? You see, God today wants to be as close to you today as he was to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and as he is to the people of the world in Revelation 21. He has given the sacrifice so you can start your journey, but he's provided a basin so you can empty your bag of actions and attitudes that don't serve you well in your relationship with Jesus. But you have to know what those are and you have to confess those. That means you have to say, God, I agree with you. These things are going to hinder me spiritually. Help me. Forgive me and help me. I commit to washing these things out of my life once, as many times as it takes, God. I'll keep coming back until I get that off of me so I can live clean in a relationship with you. What action, what attitude, so that you can move forward full speed ahead with God. Let's pray together.